0: So the question, I think, is perhaps this question. Perhaps I think is one of the most fundamental questions, because if you had to, uh, if you had to say highlight the three, the three elements of our Jewish philosophy, they would probably be number one God, number two Torah, and number three. Judaism or Israel, our nation. Those are really anything will fit into one of those three categories. And if you read Jewish I don't know, you read a lot of Jewish books, and there are a lot, and you read like so you open up Maimonides, and Maimonides is outlining someone's ideal schedule, and he says, Listen, it's it's very important. Everyone has to work for a living. But it's also important to study Torah. And he says, what's the breakdown? Like, what, what should be the Torah to work a breakdown? He says, well, you work for three hours a day. Three hours a day. And he studied Torah for nine hours a day. He says, that's, he says, that's for, for an average person. Not not like a scholar or someone dedicated. That, that's just the regular dude. And as we know, studying Torah, this, or this, uh, this perspective, uh, has been prevalent in Jewish life. Jews were always literate. Jews, Jews were always dedicated towards study, towards education. Maimonides even writes, says the, the, the f- most important thing that you have to do when selecting a, a, a place to live, it's about the Jewish education for your children. And if there's no Jewish school, you can't live there, says Maimonides. You can't live there. It's a law, Jewish law, because the second you dis, you, you disassociate the Jew from Jewish learning, the, the, the Jewish continuity is in jeopardy. So so studying Torah, Jewish learning, is paramount in, in, in our worldview. And my question that I wanted to ask, and maybe to discuss, is why is Torah study so important? Why is there such a premium? What are the benefits of studying Torah? That's the question. Why do we study Torah? Why is there such a great emphasis on Torah study? And I found... Many, 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 many answers. And the reason why there's so many answers is because Torah, uh, Torah study, benefits someone in, in a multitude of different arenas. And I think that, you know, we could ask simply, hey, why do we study Torah? The most easy answer, what's the easiest answer? God. Well, that's not the easiest answer. Well, read the book, we're the Torah. What's the easy, easiest answer? What, well, where does God say to study the Torah? In fact, there is no Torah mitzvah to study Torah. Manual for life.
1: Yeah, manual for life.
0: Yeah, but in the Torah, if you read the Torah, nowhere does it say. It gives a lot of instructions. None of them include studying the Torah, and uh, the Talmud actually points out that it's uh, it's considered to be uh, a little bit crude for someone to demand something to themselves. Talmud compares it to someone uh, how do we say this? <laughs> uh, to someone demanding a certain form of intimacy. It's like not so nice. And the idea of, uh, of the connection uh, I, got the li- I got the lily look. <laughs> <laughs> I understand where
2: you're that, but I don't understand the connection to the Torah. What's yes. the But uh, what it? it does say I am your God that shall have no
0: other gods before me. Well, that's true, but doesn't it say, doesn't it say to study Torah. I know, but he's... It's all implied. And the, the Talmud, even went, speaking about uh, intimacy, Talmud gives laws about intimacy and saying one of the things is that it, it's there's, there's more about the implication. It's more about the way you act versus by like saying, I want you know, a certain form of uh, intimacy, right? <clears throat> okay, that uh, uncomfortable moment behind us. And and the I don't know
1: what he's telling me. I don't get it. Neither do I. That's okay.
0: Yeah. Uh either way, but there is no so is that
1: so, also then implies <laughs> that many, the, any demand
0: any demand we put on ourselves. No, no. The point is like this. the Torah, the book of the Torah gives us lots of commandments. Right? Well this is not the Torah, this is just a receipt from Chase. But yeah. the Torah gives us lots of commandments. Right, And we know that studying Torah is one of the best things we could possibly do. But nowhere is it explicit in the Torah, study Torah. It's more, it's, you know, it, you know, it's more hinted, it's, it's intimated, so to speak. And the idea being, and this is something that we find a lot, that a person's relationship with the Torah is in a way very similar to a husband or wife's uh, intimate relationship. Okay. And hence, just like it would be somewhat crude for a husband or a wife to demand uh, intercourse, so too it would be somewhat crude for the Torah to demand study. Uh, but it's not exactly a mitzvah the Torah to study. It, it is, but it's an implied mitzvah. Uh, but I think that the simplest reason why we study Torah is because the Torah tells us, like you said, our instructions, instructions for living. And if you want to know how to live, you've you got to read the instruction manual. Like you, The first thing when you open up your new gadget, it says, don't use it before you read the instructions. Yeah, right. yeah. Danger. You could hurt yourself. Loss of limb and then, death can result if you use this only toaster. What? What did you say? It is only for women, not for men. So, they don't
2: they don't read instructions.
1: No.
0: Yeah, but you open up a toaster and the toaster says, "Don't use it because you could die." If you use it without reading the instructions, what it says, right? They're trying to cover their, cover their, uh, uh, cover their uh, behinds from litigation. But and you know we're thrown into the world and we have instructions, and you got to read. If you don't read the instruction manual, how could you live? That's the simplest answer. Now we are also told in the Torah that there are some mitzvahs, some sections of the Torah, some portions of the Torah that are not relevant at all, that will not impact our behavior. In any which way. In fact, there are three mitzvahs in the Torah out of 613 that the Talmud says these mitzvahs are scenarios that have never happened and will never happen. These three mismas are number one, the wayward and rebellious child. The way, uh, in Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 25, it says that if a child eats a certain amount of meat and drinks a certain amount of wine at a very specific age, etc., etc., a laundry list of requirements, they get executed. That's what it says. And Thomas said, yeah, he gave me the luck, right? It's, it's a big discussion, but either way, it never happened. Never happened, never will happen.
1: The wayward child.
0: Another one is a, uh, another one is when someone gets leprosy on their home. Their home gets splotches and they have to dismantle the house. Another law that never happened, never will happen. And the third law is the law of an entire Jewish city that doesn't have a single mezuzah in it and the entire city has adopted idolatry. Once again, it's an area that never happened and never will happen. So let me ask you all a question. If the Torah is an instructions for living, and the Torah is prepared prepare us for every scenario in the world, why would the Torah tell us the law with regards to scenarios that will never happen and have never happened? If the Torah was just instructions for living, whenever you're in any situation, this is what you do. This is the Torah's instructions for life. It's very practical. On the other hand, we see laws that we're told from the onset are very impractical. They actually, in fact, they have never happened. And we know there are mitzvahs in the Torah. Out of the 613 mitzvahs in the entire Torah, only like 150 of them are relevant for us today. Because the majority of them are related to Israel agricultural laws in Israel laws of purity and impurity laws of sacrifice laws of the temple things that are not relevant to us there's mitzvahs that are specific for cohens for kings for levies, for women and men right there's mitzvahs that only women do mitzvahs only men do right? but there are mitzvahs that are not relevant to anyone so what's the benefit of it Psst. <laughs> there's there, got, there got to, to
2: be some b- lessons in there somewhere even if it's uh, not a-
1: is that because maybe... Relevant today, to maybe us because today. It, 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 f- discussion comes in there because of that? Discussion? Yeah, but we're going to discuss something that, that might not happen, but it's there for teaching purposes.
0: Oh, so I think what you're both saying is, is 100% correct. I think what we're going to find, and I, I have a whole bunch of sources here I'm going to share with you guys. What we find is that the majority, or, or the majority of sources that i found that talk about the benefit of Torah study, they don't address the practical implications at all. Maybe that's because it's implied, of course. Oh, that's the simple answer. But also, the idea of lessons and the idea of the discussion is something we'll find a lot. So let me share with you my findings. And uh, and when we finish this, we move on, to, move on to our next discussion, which is a question that Dave has. So I found in a 13th century book of apocryphal authorship, which is a fancy way of saying we don't know exactly who wrote it, even though we have a very good guess. It's a book called The Chinuch. Sefer HaChinuch, the book of the Chinuch. Chirchah means education. Uh, in Israel, the word for the ministry of education is uh, Mishrad HaChinuch. Chinuch. And this is a book of education. What, what does it mean, education? It has in it, it's a synopsis of all 613 mitzvahs. He delineates, organizes them from uh, Genesis the first mitzvah, thou shalt be fruitful and multiply. The next mitzvah is you should have a bris milah, Abraham, circumcision. The next mitzvah is you shouldn't eat the sciatic nerve. And that's the only three mitzvahs in Genesis. And then he goes to Exodus and he gives the outlines the mitzvahs of Passover, etc. He goes all the way to the end, the last mitzvah of the Torah, uh, which I think is to write, write a Torah, write, a, write an actual Torah scroll. And he has an introduction. He asks the question. He has the same question we're discussing here tonight. And he says... Why do we have such a Torah, such a special Torah? Why are we dedicated to the Torah? And he writes, he says that man is a creation unlike any other. How so? He says all, cre- uh, uh, all creatures or creations fall into two categories. You have the instinctual you have animals, all creatures, all million and change. Uh, sci- scientists aren't quite sure exactly how many creatures we have in this world. But a little, at least the, 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 the smallest number that I've seen is 1.25. The highest number is 8.7 million. There's a lot of them. All of them share commonality. What's that? That they're instinctual. How so? They have instincts. They have software, DNA programmed to how they act. How do they act? And that is built into their physical. They're very physical because they don't have any other way to overcome that. You cannot teach a dog to do. Well, let's keep dogs out of this. I know some people have some pets. But uh, animals don't act in a way different than the way they're programmed to act. Uh, well, they can't reason, for
2: example. Or they, or they,
0: they, they, they don't have the faculties of, of, uh, of, of making decisions. Like, they can't go on they hunger can't strikes. Reason. That's, my, that's the example. Can an animal go on a hunter strike? Huh? Can't. Can't. Because it has an instinct to survival. Survival means to have food. And if you don't have food, you don't survive. That's an instinct. And only a human can do that. Now, on the other hand, we, on the flip side, we see angels. Angels don't have any instinct. In fact, they're just in, in, uh, intellects. They have absolutely no instinct, so it's just it's, they, they're just championed by uh, they're, they're they're controlled by intellect alone. And humans, says the Chinuch in his introduction, they're a mix, they're a blend, they're a mix of half instinct, half intellect. Now, how does that work? They have on one hand the instinct of survival, but they have the ability to do things which are counterintuitive to survival, right? It's like I always I always say like. Uh, You know, if we take a class trip to uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, which is the most popular place in the world for suicide, and we see someone climbing over the side, and uh, we try to convince them against it, and, yeah, there's actually a movement to make, like, a netting. They're putting a netting, so, like, yeah. Well, either way, so if we were to see a human uh, making a very... uh, Poor choice and uh, trying to jump to a conclusion. Nice, nice. Wink, wink. Uh, jumping to a conclusion off the bridge. And before he jumps, we take a rock. This is, by the way, just, this is just an um, experiment just for us. We take a rock and we say, hey, you. And the guy is dangling off and we throw the rock at him. What's he going to do? He's going to duck. Well, wait a minute. Why is he going to duck? Because he has built-in instinct of survival. But well, Wait a minute. He's about to jump off the roof. Off the bridge. So where is this instinct? Well, the instinct is being overcome by some decision. Decision made of, of uh, superseding his instinct. That's a demonstration of man being a mix. You're a mix of, of, of intellect and, and instinct. And the goal, the goal of humanity is to try to find clarity and to try to uh, be governed by your intelligence. Be governed by your intelligence and not be instinctual, not be just totally uh, if you were to follow your instinct, you guys wouldn't come to the Musher class because the Musher is about overcoming your instinct. It's about having the willpower and the decision making and the wherewithal to say, I have an instinct to be lazy but I'm not going to do it. I have an instinct to, to, to be angry but I'm not going to do it. I have an instinct to be impatient but I'm not going to overcome that. Right? That is what the Torah demands of us. That's what the Torah wants. Now the problem is how are you going to do that? How are you going to take your instinct and have your intelligence override it? Instinct is in the driver's seat. Instinct is built in. Instinct is from day one. Your intelligence comes much later. Says the Chenuch, the answer is the Torah. The Torah is the greatest pencil sharpener for the brain out there. If you study Torah, you'll realize that as you study, you can go deeper and deeper. There's always layers and layers because it's 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 the will of God. It's the it's a peek into God's brain. And God, by definition, is boundless. Is limitless. By
1: Torah, you saying to not.
0: I'm saying Torah. I'm saying Torah. When I say Torah, I mean Torah is is, is it's a di, it's documents fact, and there's a very superficial. Talking
1: Mishnah, the Mishnah. I'm talking
0: about everything. Torah, the Mishnah as well, of course, you're not talking
1: Talmud. About the Torah you're talking about Torah.
0: Well, Torah, yeah,
1: okay. Torah, yeah.
0: I, I look Panach. at them as two sides of one coin. Tanakh okay. as well, yes. Uh, but it's it's a way, it's a window into God's. Now, tell me, is God's brain sophisticated? Is it intelligence? Is it intelligent? Well, think about that. God made cells and humans and and uh, and the world of photosynthesis and wind and DNA and hearts that pump without batteries and liver. Like God's is pretty intelligent, right? When you're studying Torah, you're opening up a window into it's like that great or that terrible movie being John Malkovich. I don't remember that movie. Terrible movie that. Terrible. Terrible. terrible, but it's kind of the same thing where you could kind of like take a peek into God's God's brain. Right? And that sounds strange, but it's God's it's God's will. It, that, that's the, it's his it's the information that comes straight from God. So, in essence, what you're doing is you're sharpening your intelligence. And the deeper you delve in, the more you mm-hmm. have to uh, stress, the more you have to toil to try and understand what the Torah is saying, as the deeper you go, the more your brain and your intelligence gets finer. Like, I have a theory. This is my theory. <clears throat> I shared it with someone, and he thought I was out of my mind, but I still think it's, it's true. I think that we should take like, collectively, as a society, we take like the biggest problems that exist in physics, in mathematics, in biology, in engineering, and what we do is we go to yeshiva, we knock on the door. The yeshiva is like, like some yeshiva students; they're studying 12, 14 hours a day of high-intensity Talmud. And I know I was in these institutions, and these are guys that like take any issue, and they like they have like these razor-sharp uh, intellectual uh, examinations and analysis, and like that, like you know, like, you know what it looks like. It looks like an infomercial, one of those things that chop that, that yeah. chop vegetables. It's it's like that for issues. Yeah, it's Bronco. and it's amazing. It's processing information and organizing because they were trained by the Torah. The Torah make them in, makes them into these incredible, dynamic, intellectual superstars. And my 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 idea is to take like the biggest issues and go to the yeshivas and say during like the three weeks that they have vacation. And the vacation will vacation, the yeshiva, uh, yeshiva schedules are synchronized throughout the whole world, so that after Tishabav, Tishbuhav is next Tuesday, uh, after Tishbuv, everyone's off for uh, three weeks. So during those three weeks, we give the Yeshiva students the problems, let we'll them analyze it for 12 hours a day, and before we, we'll have everything solved. Health, cancer, a, whatever you want, everything solved, because these are titans of int- intellect, huh? Well, no. there's some okay, but some problems are unsolvable because you're dealing with uh, another uh, another well another uh, decision, an arbiter, right? Another entity that's not willing to be flexible. So, if a solution uh, demands an agreement and the opposition is steadfastly opposed to any agreement, well, then you can't reach an agreement, and there's there, hence there's no resolution, right? If a resolution, right? Demands an agreement from two sides, and both side oh, no, one side has in their charter as a fundamental principle of the organization, no agreements and no negotiation with Israel. Then there's no resolution. But let's take uh, the, the the things that could be solved. That—that's that, my idea. And you know why? Because these these are people that whose minds was crafted and honed. Uh, to be razor sharp by the Torah, and to these people, like the, the mix of their instinct versus their intellect, it, it's it's very clear. Like their intellect is so dominant, it's so dominant, and their decisions are so crystal clear. They don't have this like you know these muddy, cloudy. Uh, like it's a whole hodgepodge. That's because that's what it is. It's a hodgepodge unless there's clarity, unless the mo- unless the, the the intellect is honed to the degree where it just it just it, it supersedes all.
1: Now techni- techni- Techn- te- Technion. 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 Are they getting there?
0: Uh, so their, this is the que- your question like their this. Employee,
1: <laughs> what are researchers from Yeshiva?
0: Uh, because no. it, it's kind
1: of reflecting what you're saying. No,
0: they—that's the thing. They don't. Uh, but, well, some of them are not, 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 not to say one way or the other. Some of them are, uh, and but I think it's—I think it's. Well, my point is, it's an untapped resource. It's an untapped. It's a tremendously untapped. Re- now, some of them listen if they don't know how to program, they can program, right? But uh, reasoning and analysis is something which they um, and debate debate, any. you walk into, if you walk in, just, if you've never been to a yeshiva, and you walk into like a, one of the biggest yeshivas, let's say in Israel, you, you'll never see anything in your mind like, in your life like that, never seen anything like it, it's, think of a room the size of, uh, which room, I'm trying to think of a, a room that's a comparable size, like think of a massive auditorium or or gym, like a, you know, and just uh, every three feet there's like uh there's benches that are that fit six people. Who even uses benches anymore? No one, right? Benches at six people and two, two, and two. Everyone has a study mate, and they have these stenders. You know what a stender is? It kind of looks like what the, that little stand that you have for your iPad, but it's like, it, it's like a
2: book stand. It's like a
0: book stand, but it, you could, you, it means it, it's, it's like a stand that you could use it while standing, or you could use it while sitting and lean it towards you. Yeah, like a lectern. It's called a shtender or stender. Like a stand, It's like Yiddish. It's like Yiddish for a stander. Like a stand thing that stands and sits. And they're all screaming on top of their lungs. You're watching, like, is this a, is this an insane asylum? Screaming on top of. Their lungs?
2: Yeah, because it's like, the noise level. Is like, yeah,
0: in one of the, in one of the rooms, I remember <laughs> this is funny. I just had a conversation with my chavruta, my study mate, that I, had, I was studying with him in Israel, and we were in one of the. The big, we were the, big, the biggest yeshiva in the world. It's called the Mir Yeshiva. It was founded actually in 1815 in Poland, a city called Mir. And in fact, it was the only it was the only yeshiva uh, during the Holocaust that actually survived in its intact, in its entirety. The entire yeshiva like went from Poland, ended up in Vilna, which is Lithuania slash Poland, and it ended up all the way in Shanghai. And it spent five years in Shanghai, and it was reestablished in New York and in Israel. But it's the biggest city in the world and they have on their main campus they have like ten different buildings and you know, you know and, and maybe twenty different study rooms. Some of them bigger, some of them smaller. Why? But, was it in Shanghai? why? Yeah. Oh, because they all managed to get visas uh to uh to China and then and they were in Kobe, Japan, and they were in Shanghai. And they were there for five years and they had like and you see pictures of them like like all the way in the far east, and this nineteen 18, 1941, 1942, Like at, Europe is decimated, European Jews decimated, and they were just the entire yeshiva was able to escape and and continue, uh, and continue. And then eventually, they ended up in in New York. Well, they they, they took the, the, the they ended up in San Francisco. Most most European Jews came the other way. They came and ended up in New York or even in Galveston, but they ended up in San Francisco. And then they took the train to New York, and they established yeshivas in New York. There's still a mere yeshiva in New York, but there's a massive Mir yeshiva in Israel. So we were in this one room. It was very long, and it wasn't built, I don't think, to, to be a yeshiva because the acoustics were so bad. It was like a like a low ceiling, very long cylinder, and and I remember sitting and the, imagine someone sitting in this chair, like right like this, right? And you I, I can't hear him unless he's screaming. <laughs> Really? It's it's it you know, but it, it but that kinda of, like you get sweaty after like four hours of sitting there and just oh, screaming are they, yeah. stud,
1: are, they, are they all studying the same topic or are they
0: all different? Well types? well typically what they would do is that the yeshiva itself uh was studying one uh one one of the uh, one Talmud, like one section one of the Talmud. To, and there were some older people there, like they have some like career scholars that they would go do their own thing okay. or maybe that's a noon do something. Either way. So uh so, no, there's no phone, not a, There were no phones, no cell phones, and uh, the rules. The rules still are today that you, you cannot walk in to the study hall with any phone of any of any sort, even if it's turned off. So, like, no one has phones. Like, if you want to steal phones, you should go to the yeshiva and store to everyone's like jacket or bag outside in the light. That, that's the best place to steal phones. So, not a single person has even even a phone turned off. Like, nothing. It doesn't exist. You want to go with the business? Well. <laughs> Uh, but no, no one has yeah, it's it's remarkable. you never see anything like that there's no there's, there's no comparable uh s- you know situation in, you know in the world, like there isn't so uh so that's the point. The point is is that the Torah is able to uh, studying the Torah, even if you don't gain any practical benefit that way well, you know when we studied, we spent months talking about uh the laws of partnerships, partnerships. You and I were partners we share a field we want to i want i want to sell or you don't want to sell or let's say we decided to split our partnership we built the fence halfway and then the fence fell down and different stone like and like i'm thinking like i was like 7 years old i don't i don't know i don't know anything you know i don't have any money i don't know partnership it wasn't practical relative to me as an individual but we still spent months studying it and even though it, it is practical, but it wasn't practical for us as individuals. But what it does is it it, it creates, uh, it, it, it's, it it enables it forms you into a intellectual superstar, and that enables you to have um, a life where you're governed or by your by your by your intellect. So that's uh, another reason that that uh, that we that I found. Next thing. This is somewhat in a similar vein, but it's a more specific uh, area. We are told, not that we need to be told, we are, but we are told in the Talmud that we all have something called a Yetzer Hara or Yetzer Ra, which is loosely translated as the evil or the bad inclination. But if you actually look in the Midrash, this is just a secret. I don't want this to leave the room. If you look at the Midrash, and the Midrash says, Vayar tov me'od. All the way at the beginning of Genesis, it says, and the Almighty saw everything that He created, everything that He did, and it was uh, exceedingly good. So it doesn't say it was good. It says it was exceedingly good. It's like, tov me'od, very good. Right? And, uh, the midrash like wonders like what is this thing that is good but it's it's really good, like it's good but it's exceedingly good. So it says, "Tov." The word "Tov" is a reference to the Yetzer Tov, which means the good inclination. Meod, exceedingly so. That's the reference to the Yetzer Ra, the evil inclination, uh, which t- tells us that at least from the Torah's perspective, the evil inclination. There's something about it that is indeed very, very good. So, what's that? Why would something that's name is the bad inclination be something very good? And the answer is because it's an opportunity. If you didn't have any resistance, you wouldn't be able to grow. If you didn't have to overcome anything, well, then you're not really progressing. If it doesn't hurt, no pain. No gain, right? No pain, no gain. And therefore, there's something about this Yetzirah that if we are able to harness our efforts and to overcome it, well, then we can reach heights that we never would have reached otherwise. Now, how do we go about overcoming this Yetzirah? It's a tool. It's an opportunity. But what methods and what tactics are we going to employ to overcome that, someone has a desire, or someone has something that they are told to do, and they don't—they don't want to do it. Or let's say someone has a an urge, which is maybe not bad, but uh, it's not productive, and you're wasting time. Or maybe someone has urges that are bad, and someone wants to do bad things. And Lord knows, we see—you uh, read the—you read the headlines. Lots of people do really bad things. Lots of people act in ways that are not admirable and uh, not the. Uh, Embar- they're embarrassing to them, and just things that we would consider to be bad—not faithful, right? We know that's a huge issue. Why do the, Why do people act that way? Because they have an urge, and they don't overcome it. So, how do you overcome your urges? What do you do?
1: You go back to say study Torah. So, there's got to be there's got to
2: be things in the Torah that tell you how to do that, right? That's a good
0: guess. So in fact, if you actually collect all the Talmudic statements that talk about this, and you put them all together, you find something very fascinating. You'll find a lot of different methods, and if you just—if—and I only know this because my grandfather, one of his articles, he collects one of his essays, one of his many voluminous uh, essays. He has an essay called about the Yetzirah, and He does. He collects a piece of Talmud from here, and Talmud from there, and Talmud from there, puts them all together, and says there's a certain progression here. And with the Talmud, if you, it means if you just see one, it's very nice. But then you see them all, and you see the exact language used, then you're able to see an entire framework. So we find, for example, one of the things, adam <laughs> tov It's a very nice tactic. What it means is like this. You should always ensure that their yitz tov, your good inclination, what's right to do, should always be in a struggle with what what's bad with Yitzchak the idea being that you have to create an alliance where what you want or what Yitzchak wants and what Yitzhak wants is the same thing. For example, what's the example? Let's say let's say uh, take a common example. Someone someone wants to. Uh, someone's lazy. They don't want to wake up. Uh, and go uh, study Torah for an hour before they go to work, right? But the Yetzer Tov wants them to do it. Because that's what's right to do. That's the sign Torah, the Rabbi Wolby said. It's just a wonderful thing. Wonderful. I want to study Torah every hour. I I want to, but I also want to sleep, right? It's a classic conflict of the Yetzer Tov and the Ra. So what does he do? He has to find a way that even the Ra wants him to wake up early. How would you go about that? How do, you, how do you find a way that even, quote-unquote, your enemy wants to do what you want to do? It's like a nice negotiation tactic. How do you want that the person that you're negotiating with, uh, how do you make it very appealing for them to do what you want? So if you were to say, listen, <clears throat> if I don't wake up for the next week to study Torah for an hour before going to work and I sleep in for every day, I give $100 to charity. What you're in effect doing is a very strong tactic. What you're doing is that you just created a certain urge of the Yetzirah, of the evil inclination to make sure you wake up. So then you have a convergence of your Yetzirah. And you're still, they're both con- t- convincing you to wake up. And voila, you probably wake up because you don't want to lose that $100. So well well it's a good thing, but some people the Yates are raw, doesn't want them to give so much money to charity. It'll work. Trust me, it'll work. Try it. Make sure you put the torch as your charity of choice. So that's one that's that's one example. There's other examples of how you're supposed to engage and struggle. Uh, but the best example is or, or the highest level is where there's you reduce conflict. Means I can tell you, listen, you have a certain negative, a negative uh, instinct, you could channel it. There's always a way of channeling it, right? You can say, listen, uh, you know, uh, I'm really angry, so anger is a bad thing. Uh, you know, what I'm gonna do I'm gonna channel it. I'll be angry at the Hamas people, I'll be angry at bad people. It's like a nice way of taking this conflict. And directing it and channeling it and in a direction where it doesn't, doesn't hurt you. But a name at a higher level is where you actually eliminate it. Where you actually eliminate it. So the Talmud says, and I'll, it's a very famous uh, statement: It says, Barasi Yetzer Hara, Barasi Torah Tavlan, which means I created, it's like the Almighty speaking: I created Yetzer Ra, I created an evil creation, I created the Torah. As tavlin, the word tavlin can mean either as a medicine, as an antidote, but it also means as a spice. The word for tavlin means spices, and the idea being, the Torah is going to be an antidote. The simple way of saying it is, the Torah is the antidote. Just studying Torah is going to is going to uh, reduce. The Yetzirah. And I'll explain how that works for those that are, uh, those that are uh, uh, dubious of what I'm saying. Merely studying Torah is going to uh, be an antidote or it's going to be a spice. What's the difference? What does spice do? How does spice work? What, 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 spice, it f- gives it a flavor. It tastes something which may be a little bit sour and makes it delicious. It doesn't eliminate it but it makes it good. Now, how does that work? Rabbi, you're telling me that studying Torah is going to, redu- is going to eliminate my Yetzera, my evil inclination. So I, I want to point out uh, that this is one potential uh, way of seeing it, but Maimonides, in the uh, part of the laws, uh, the uh, sexual laws that he talks about, at the end, all the way at the end, he gives a little advice. He says, Which, as we all know, simple Hebrew means there's no thought, there's no illicit uh, uh, thought, uh, uh, like a, a uh, there's no, I'm not sure if the right word, there's no maybe a lewd thought. Only in a heart devoid of wisdom. That they mean if you're someone's engaged in wisdom, if someone's mind is occupied with wisdom, then they're going to be prevented from 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 uh, indecent indecent thoughts. So I think this is possibly one way to understand one way to understand uh, this particular idea of Torah. If someone has the Torah, they, it's going to prevent them from the eighth. And I, I want to add another thing. I want to add another thing. This is, uh, uh, as you guys all know, <coughs> uh, if you hear a lot of my classes, you know I have a, uh, a refrain from bringing like in Kabbalah, or mysticism. I don't do mysticism. Why? Because I'm ignorant in it. I don't like talking about things that I'm ignorant in. And I also, I have a, a certain sensitivity towards um the dumbing down, so to speak, of the Torah's hidden secrets. Like I don't think it's proper like, you know, to just like go on the television and start talking about things that probably the presenter of the knows nothing about, but also it's things that are very delicate. And there's the risk of confusing uh deep insights for nice little tidbits that you could put on Facebook, you know? Uh, so i don't talk a lot about Kabbalah or mysticism, but what I will talk about is the one Zohar that my grandfather brings in one of his books. So if my grandfather brings it, I kind of feel like he you know he he presented it to us in a way that we can understand that and he says the Zohar says something very interesting, if not for Yitzra de Arias, if not for the desire for uh, uh, illicit sexuality. There would be no chedvasa deshmeitza. People wouldn't be able to learn with the same excitement. What it's really saying is that that, uh, man, primarily man, uh, has a certain passion, which is a fact, which is a reality. It could be manifested in multiple ways. There's a certain excitement. If you walk like if you walk into walk into this yeshiva, you'll see that people are are arguing with such passion. where's where this passion from? Like, who has this kind of passion for learning? Well, it's it's really the same it's the same thing as sexual passion. It's the same thing, says the Zohar. It's the same exact thing, but it's channeled Channel. towards Torah. Yeah. It's channeled towards yeah. Torah. And if you didn't if you didn't have this particular drive, well then you wouldn't have that same capacity for wonderful passionate Torah study. So I think that that the, like the, what it's and I, I think that this is kind of a continuation we brought that from Maimonides that studying Torah and when we're talking about studying Torah we're talking about delving in seriously is going to prevent man from uh, from sin. Uh, and this idea we find elsewhere we find it in the Perkei Avot in the chapters of the Fathers it says Torah im I'm sorry I'm speaking much in Hebrew. Anyone here speaks any Hebrew? A little bit. Bissel. That's Yiddish. <laughs> I, I can. I can teach it. Anyone here speaks Yiddish? Like well. Uh, oh, Bill. So I could probably. I could probably give a class in Yiddish, and you won't even laugh at my mistakes. <laughs> huh? He might. Huh? He might laugh. Okay. Well, so I'll just you'll stick to English. Uh, you know, it's kind of hard to master one language, right? My uh, grandfather spoke. Uh, eight languages fluently and wrote in all the languages. Pretty impressive. Uh, his, his father was like in 14 languages. Even though my grandfather was way smarter than his dad. So it says in the chapters of the fathers, Yafet Torah uh, and Der It's really nice. It's a really nice marriage of Torah with hard work, with, with, with having a profession. Because toiling in both of them will make one forget from sin. This is this is not quite the same idea, but it's a little bit of a variant. Uh, beforehand, we were talking about um, channeling it. It's like the spice. It's the same thing directed elsewhere. Here, we're talking about forgetting. We want people to boredom is always a segue to sin. Boredom is a segue to sin. When someone is busy, they have a lot of things going. They have their professional life. They also have their spiritual life. They 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 have a packed schedule. There's, there's no time. You forget about sin. Forget about sin. Okay, is that it? So what do we have so far? We have the reason to study Torah because otherwise you don't know the instructions. Torah is, is the Torah is God's instructions for living. If you don't have that, you don't know, you know the instructions. Well, what about things that don't have instructions or, or that aren't relevant to us? Well, then there's benefits to you. Like there's lessons that we can be learned, like, uh, like you mentioned. Uh, we talked about it sharpening our mind. It's a pencil sharpener for, for, our, for our brain. We also talked about it being something which prevents us from sinning, either because it, uh, either because it spices it up. It's like what the Zohar says. It's able to we're able to direct our passion towards Torah, uh, or it's because we're too busy. And when you're busy, you're not bored. Well, then you're not going to sin. I found other things shockingly, huh? And I don't think I think this an incomplete list. So what else is there? I uh, found what did I find? A statement by our sages. Once again, this is as if it's God speaking, and it says, "Halavai, osi azavu Shamaro. If only that this is not this is God talking about the times where uh, the Jewish people uh, were 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 going away from Judaism. And God says, "If only the Jewish people abandoned God, but retained the Torah, because the the the, the light of the Torah is going to bring them back to Judaism." The idea being is that Torah is more of a magnet to Judaism than God is. We think of God as the center of everything, right? And But relating to God is not quite as good as going through the Torah. The Torah is more powerful to bring uh, people back to God than God himself. That's, that, that's what it's saying. And this is what uh, Dave mentioned uh, at the beginning, that Torah connects man to God. And in fact, Torah connects man to God more than God does. Now how does that work? How does that work? So we have um, my uh, uh, my uh, esteemed brother, Rabbi Wolby Sr. He uh, is very fond of quoting this. I'm sure you guys have heard it by a thousand times. But then he heard it from me, so maybe it'll be a little different. You guys tell me. He loves quoting this that we say in the Hadratah. We say that uh, uh, if, if only the Almighty brought us back to uh, Mount Sinai, but didn't give us the Torah. That would be enough. Well, what's the benefit of going to going to Mount Sinai? It's like going to the the, the movie theater but not watching the movie. Like, well, oh, we only went to the movie, but we didn't actually see the movie. Like, you missed the the feature presentation. And I don't know how it's actually he says it, but uh, the way I heard it, I think it might be a little different. Is that there's a certain relationship that the Jewish people developed with God uh, when they were they left Egypt and they had these miracles and they developed a certain faith and a certain reliance of God and certain dependence on God and certain relationship with him and that was uh that reached its climax at, at Mount Sinai. Like they 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 shedded themselves of the uh of the of the enemy. The enemy was vanquished in front of them. They started getting food raining down from heaven. Like really nice really nice way to live. Like God's really taking care of them. They realize that uh, there's a certain dedication of their lives toward to God. You know it Wow, and now we're together. We're united here. We're 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 encamped uh, next to this mountain. And I'll get to you in a second, Dave. And and that and that's really a goal unto itself. And the Torah is a, a thermos that's able to maintain to retain that heat. <clears throat> The Torah is the way, um, the originator of this thought is that the Torah is like a, like a thermos. You know, a thermos keeps water hot, but like, what, maybe for an hour, two hours, five hours a week, you know? Imagine you're able to create a thermos that keeps the heat for thousands of years. Can you imagine how much more technology you would need for that? That's what the Torah is. The Torah is a thermos that's going to maintain the heat since the time of Mount Sinai. And if you're able to get yourself into that thermos, you're able to delve yourself into Torah study, you're going to be able to just feel that same heat that the Jewish people felt in Mount Sinai. Same thing. Right? Because the Torah is that powerful thermos that's going to maintain the heat. Dave, you had a question?
1: Yeah, I'm going to go back to one of the points you made. Yes. You had said that uh, if you have anger issues or you have uh, certain things that brings out, Yes. That you should go read Torah. Uh huh. Well, you know, in practicality, uh-huh. if you get mad at somebody or you get you start acting out, whatever it is, you're generally not going to pick up the Torah to to, um, to stop that action. Yes. So, in your opinion, is there anything, any other way to? Cure yeah, that I don't action? think.
0: You know, you're saying like this. Uh, you're saying is the Torah a? Um, uh, is the Torah a uh, what's the what are those medical things called those uh, first aid kit? Right. Torah is not a first aid kit. That's your point. I agree with that. I think you know sometimes uh, if if you're already injured, you might have a hard time. Uh, but I think if you look at it more of a long term ver- uh, uh, vision, like we, we know with everything, uh, change is never going to be instantaneous. It's not. Mm-hmm. But what will cause the is the Torah? That's what to- the Torah is going to be the engine, the tool that's going to drive that change. So yes, it might, not be a, uh, it might not be a first aid kit, and there might need to be first aid kits. Uh, uh, maybe the Torah in some capacity can be a first aid kit, but there maybe the other, there's other suggestions. But oftentimes, sometimes, you might be at a point where it's too late, I agree. And is that
1: in a fit of rage,
0: you don't just give someone a book. <laughs>
1: is that maybe why the Musar movement became popular, because that's a way of... Just thinking about that, some Musar one way to deal with those. Issues. That's that's why. You're yeah. Really well, modeling. you said
0: the Muslim movement became popular. It didn't really become popular on a national scale. It became popular in yeshivas. Okay. It was only. It was. It was hugely popular but only in yeshivas. It was uh, the movement that Rabbi Salanta had intended would actually never never came to fruition.
1: But that it would be a way of us dealing with our mm-hmm. yeah, it's, well, it's Musar. Well, absolutely. But
0: what do you think Musar is? I know.
1: Well,
2: that's, that's, yeah. Well, what is
0: Musar? What is Musar? The
1: study of positive. Well, what is traits. Musar? Well,
0: where does that come from?
2: From the Torah. Thank the you.
0: Yes, that's the Torah. Mu- Musar the is not some new, age, new, new age nineteenth century wisdom. Mm-hmm. It's the Torah, oh, it. but it's certain aspects of the Torah that are dear towards character development. That
1: new packaging.
0: Well, it was pack- but organized also organized yeah, and systemized and way, you know tried to you know. <laughs> To be uh, distilled, distilled and organized. Not that it wasn't tried before. We have many of the many classic Muslim, uh, uh The the four the four, uh, the four uh, most prominent mussar books are were written uh, were written. No, all of them were written uh, before the 19th century. The latest one was Masi'lat Yeshareim was written in the 18th century. Right? Luzzatto died in 1746. Right, that's so more than like 100 years before Rabbi Zalantar, uh came burst onto the scene. Right, so it's not like it's a Musar is anything different than Torah. Musar is a certain part of Torah. What else? Is that it, Rabbi Wolby? I think even if it was it, there's this is enough. Like 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 we're talking about so many amazing areas of our lives that are improved with Torah, but there's more. Yes, Susan.
2: Well, you know, in our class on, on the Way of God that we've been in, in Rabbi Luzzatto's book. Yes, we learned about how studying Torah elevates the spirituality of Jews in other places. Do, do you know, I mean, am I saying this directly? Right? Yeah, you know what, uh, uh, it, what that. It better, better than I'm saying it,
0: but that it has more of a, has, an impact, has an impact not impact, just on, on the individual.
2: Like, like the reason why you know what the what the guys in the yeshiva are doing, like, like. When the when they I just saw it on Facebook, you know, in Israel they said the guy they're supposed to, they're they're not allowed to have their vacations right now. They have to yeah I know study when in
0: in two thousand and six when I was in the Mir Yeshiva I was there from two thousand five to two thousand and eight and then I, I I went to different Yeshiva I went I was back there for another half a year. But uh, during two thousand six in the summer, there was the Lebanon war. Remember the Katyusha yeah. rockets, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we didn't have vacation. And this, uh, we we had pretty rigorous schedules, and mm-hmm. the vacation was kind of set in stone. But we said, "How could how could you guys go away from the Torah so, and you had to go on vacation and go swimming like when Jewish people are under attack?" So not only did we not have vacation, what we actually had was an initiative, and the Rosh uh which means the head of the yeshiva, he uh, organized an initiative. He says, "We're all going to dedicate our time towards." writing Torah, uh Torah insights, Torah wisdom. And he said, I want everyone in Yeshiva and obviously not everyone participated, but I want every everyone in Yeshiva to write, give me ten or fifteen pages of, of Torah insights. And I wrote as well. I you know, I wrote, I have a very an amazing, amazing piece of scholarship, if I may say so myself. Um mm-hmm. I, on, on Torah and I remember why he says I want everyone to give it to me and I walked in and he has stats like this can you imagine stacks of, of, of insights and m- most of them are really high quality from like I said really really intelligent because their brain was sharpened 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 sharpened, sharpened by the Torah so yes absolutely so, uh, yeah, you absolutely
2: know, you know what I'm trying to say you know what Luzato says in that book about this day of, you know. I do? speak up here you know, I mean, I'm not expressing myself, so I, you need to do it for it, me. Well, well you're
0: saying love
1: you know, lifts the whole
2: community. It elevates, you know, a, you know, a Jew praying over here or studying Torah over here is going to elevate. Yeah, the a Jew idea, over the here. the overlap of the,
0: the the interconnectivity, I mean, right, interconnectivity of uh, I'll tell you what the what, there's a very nice uh, uh, Jerusalemite Talmud. Uh, with the Talmud. When I typically say Talmud, I usually mean the Babylonian Talmud, which was written in. Where was the Babylonian Talmud written? In Babylon. Babylon. Hence it's called the Babylonian Talmud. And where was the Jerusalem Talmud written? Israel. 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 Well, no, that's why it's a trick question. It (laughs) was written in Tiberias. Because as we know from historically... (laughs) Sorry. Uh, As we know, after the destruction of the first temple and all the revolts the Jewish people had, they made Jerusalem into a city for jupiter and zeus and that's uh, one of the reasons why they had all those uh, the revolts afterwards so it was the first city that was yudelhat there was n- no jews living there and they wrote the uh, the, the jerusalem talmud uh, in about the year 320 of the common era and they wrote it in tiberius but some of these are called the jerusalem talmud i love to say no one ever knows that tiberius jerusalem talmud that's a good question. I love that question. The difference is like this. First of all, whenever we say Talmud, we typically mean the Babylonian Talmud. Why? Because that's the Talmud that that supersedes the Jerusalem Talmud. Even though it came a hundred years, one hundred eighty years afterwards, and typically in Jewish texts, the earlier text is going to have supersedence over the later text. Now, why do we go with the later text, the Babylonian Talmud, versus the? earlier texts of the Jerusalem Talmud, Jerusalem Talmud. Uh, especially when you take into account that they both called Talmud because the word Talmud has a specific meaning and they both fulfill the very specific function which is the elucidation, elaboration of the Mishnah. The Mishnah being laws, the Talmud being the explanation of it, the sources of it the exceptions of it, right? The the practical, uh, right? it's taking the laws and fleshing them out. You might have five lines of Mishnah and five pages of Talmud to explain the, the, you know. So why would you go with the later text? And the answer is that the later text is written in a different format. How so? It's written in a different format because if you look, if you open up a book of Babylonian Talmud, and I highly, highly, highly advise get. They have um, tremendous, English translations. To get yourself any book of Talmud, the the the, the best translation of the Talmud is, was just finished in 1990. Uh no, not 1990, it was like 2005 or something like that. They finished it, and it's called the Art Scroll Talmud. It's by far the best translation of it. 73 volumes. Open up any one of them. Start any page. And start reading it because they have it on the bottom, they explain it very well, and you'll see that if you it, it's. Think of it as figuratively, you taking your ear and sticking it into one of those mere yeshiva's buildings. And just, like, as you open up, like there's debates and more debates and more proofs and more proofs and more, right? And like, that's, it's like, as if you stick your ear in there and like, whoa, it's like, it's like, it's, it's a lively dialogue of arguments. I'll prove it to you from here. No, I'll counterproof. I'll prove it back. I'll bring your source. What I mean, that doesn't make sense for that reason. How could that, how is that compatible with that? Whoa, it's like, you know, you know, that's the way it's written. And oftentimes we'll take a, an opinion and we'll analyze it. And we'll analyze it for a page, a page and a half. And in the end we'll say, no, no, this opinion is wrong because we disproved it. But we still wrote it. So the idea being the Babylonian Talmud is going to bring you not only the opinions that we end up with in the end, but also to bring us the process. It's also going to teach us how we got there. And it's also going to demonstrate that even... When an opinion is wrong at the end, it's still right enough to be written. And therefore, there may be a situation where we will employ a opinion that was rejected, but it was rejected for a specific reason, but maybe if that reason doesn't exist or in a different scenario, we'll actually use that. Uh, and uh, that's why the Talmud is a tremendous, tremendous piece of scholarship. It was collaboration of thousands of, of rabbis that were very, 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 very intelligent over 60 years, and they finally finished it, and it's an incredible, incredible book.
1: And in the end, there's one majority decision on every topic, isn't there, basically?
0: Oh, uh, there's books there's butch and butch and butch written about how the Talmud actually uh, comes out to what the opinion is. So, for example, you might have uh, Be Shammai, Be Silla, school, school of Shammai, School of Hill. I haven't, I haven't, heard, that. I haven't heard of Hill and Shammai. We always go with Hill, always. Um... Not not always actually there's eighteen exceptions, but uh, yeah, but there, theres there's rules and rules and rules. no I can't but there's there's rules and rules of of how we actually go about uh, um, it's by far the most sophisticated book of law, books of law in uh, in the history of mankind, and it''s it's or it's, it's very organized, but very uh very big. So that's why. So that's the difference between the two. As opposed to the Jerusalem Talmud, it doesn't. It's much more stiff. It's much more just laws, and mm-hmm. uh, and therefore, uh, therefore, it's not the. It wasn't. It wasn't done. It wasn't done with the same scope as the as the Babylonian Talmud. And
2: that was written
0: when? Babylonian Talmud, mm-hmm. five hundred. The year five hundred, in Babylon, three twenty. These are all estimates, but they're within ten years, probably. You know, one way or the other, uh, when was it? It was actually finished.
1: Yeah.
0: Yes, that's from my my Monty. My Monty says, yeah. He says, yeah. No, this is this is not for scholars. He says, no, 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 not for scholars. No, no, regular dudes. Three, three hours. That should be enough. I guess he foresaw the internet, right? Three hours should be enough. Come on, between me and you, we all know most people don't actually work three hours. You know, from uh, most people. A lot of people, you know, they come, they come to the office, they kick around, they go on Facebook, this and that, they go to get a coffee. If you actually take minute by minute of actual work, I don't know if it's more than three hours a day. (laughs) 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 That's what he says. Yeah, so what's the question? What's the question? What's the question? Uh, I think it could be practical. I'm saying, it's remember, it's Maimonides talking in the uh, 12th century. Maimonides lived, ele- his years are, as we all know, 1135 to 1204. So he lived a long time ago and his, his, uh, uh, you know, Maimonides' literary accomplishments, if you were to take 1% of them, you take all of Maimonides' literary accomplishments and just take 1% of it, it's by far more than like most of us could even anticipate thinking of in twenty lifetimes. Like Maimonides was just an, he's he's the man of the millennium, There's, uh, bar none. You know what it says in Maimonides' grave? You know what it says? What would it say in Maimonides' grave? You
1: are the one. Huh? No, you are the
2: one. no, I bet it's something very humble.
1: Think. <laughs> <laughs> did he write it? That should be he me. didn't write what
0: it. Would you say? He, did he
2: was a physician or something because he was a doctor. He
0: I was think. everything. He he he's, he he is the original uh, um, Renaissance man. Like he he was a an incredible philosopher. He's a philosopher studied today in non Jewish circles, right? Uh, he was a physician. He wrote books on on physics. We have the mani's prayer for physicians. Uh, but he was you know was a, a halachist. He was everything. And he wrote so much, you know. Uh, the Thirteen Principles of Faith. That's Maimonides, right? There's uh, Maimonides' introduction to, uh, to the chapter of of the, of, of uh, chapter uh, of the Fathers. Maimonides' introduction to the Talmud. Maimonides' introduction to the Book of Ma- Maimonides. The, all fourteen books of Maimonides. All uh, commentary of the entire Mishnah. Um, uh, the uh, uh, the guide to the perplexed. What was I saying? What's, What's on his gravestone? What's on his gravestone? And just just to give like an insight of like what did people think about him? Now, not to say he wasn't without controversy. In fact, the book yeah. of Maimonides was actually burned during his lifetime. A lot of people were not happy with him. And in fact, the Rabbeinu Yonah, right, who was a contemporary, we even lived a little bit later. Uh, he he uh, was one. Uh, he originally had begun uh, uh, as an opponent, as a fierce opponent of the Rambam, and then and he didn't actually burn the book, the book of the Rambam. But there was a book burning. Uh, of Maimonides' books uh, by some Jews. Very tragic. And uh, years later, that very same location, the Gentiles took a bunch of Talmuds and burned them in the same location. Mm-hmm and and, and rebenu yona took that as a lesson that that was in the same exact place because it was a punishment for the jewish people burning books. and he in fact took upon himself took upon himself to write the shari chuva which is one of the one of the four fundamental books of musar which is the it's called the gates of repentance if you've seen it he wrote that as a method of repenting for his opposition from myzbots but what would it say what would be the epithet of the, of Maimonides? So on one side it says we can still go see this. It's in uh, it's in uh, it's in Tiberias in Israel. On one side it said like this: "Mi Moshe, ad Moshe, lokam which means from Moses, from Moshe, till Moses, there was no one like Moses. The idea being from Maimonides or from Moses, the the Moses. Till Moshe, Moshe, Rambam, was, his name was Moshe, there was nobody like Maimonides. I mean, it, what, 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 the, what the grave is saying is that there was no leader the Jewish people had from the times of Moses, which is an incredible statement yeah. if you take into account that it 2,000 years earlier. Uh, but, and that may not, no one's trying to say that Maimonides was greater than all those people, but it means the scope of his leadership and his impact uh, vis-a-vis his generation was incredible.
1: So he was the one, but
0: my real question is: So, who do we owe that transcription uh, to? Yeah, that's a good question. And the, but let me tell you what it says on the other side. that makes it even okay. more interesting. Okay. The other side it says, okay. "Hamuvchar Haminha Enoshi." Hamuvchar Haminha Enoshi. What does that mean? Muvchar means the choicest, Hamin of the species, Hanoshi of man. He's the best of man. That's what it says. Hamuvchar Haminha Enoshi. And someone once asked, um, my great-uncle was a big Rosh Hashiva in America. His name was Rabbi Yaakov Khamenevsky. In fact, he was my namesake. So my first name is Yaakov. I was named after my great-uncle, who was a wonderful uh, scholar and Rosh Hashiva, uh, first in Europe and then the United States. And someone said to him, Why would they write that on Maimonides' grave? Nowhere in the Torah, nowhere in the Talmud, no, like the, these, these these three words, Hamuvkar, Haminha Anoshi, the choicest of the species of man, is something that you don't find anywhere else in the Torah, in the Talmud, in the Midrash, anywhere. Why would they choose choose that to, to say to write about him? So he said very interestingly, we know that Maimonides was a very controversial figure in his time. People burned his books, they said he was a heretic. Now, what's the word for heretic in Hebrew? It's called Min. Min Min means it has dual meanings. The word min has dual meanings. It can either mean a species, a kind, or it can mean a, a heretic. So he theorized that someone took someone went to Maimonides' grave and wrote Hamin, the heretic. And then someone else came and wrote Hamufhar, Hamin, Hainoshi, the choicest of the species of man. So yes, we don't know who wrote it. But either way, it gives you some of, an, uh, of, of, of a window into who we're talking about. My grandfather said that if the Gentiles had someone like, uh, like Maimonides, if they had access to him, they would immediately make him into our god in a god in a similar way to uh, J.C. Immediately. Because like, they would, just, they would, just, they would be just be too shell-shocked. Okay, I actually have one more nice thing I wanted to add. And we never got to Dave's question or my other point.
1: My question is
0: as important as yours. Oh, come on, Dave. Your question is very important. Humble. You're humble, okay. Just like Barry.
1: <laughs>
0: so the last thing I wanted to say about the Torah is that I think the Torah is a a way we said it's a way to peek into God's mind. It's also a way to experience spiritual pleasure. Man is here to have pleasure. Everyone agrees. No one denies that. The only thing that we, uh, the only disagreement that we have is in what arena would we like to have our pleasure in. The Torah gives us many, 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 many limitations on pleasure. Foods we can't eat, people we can't sleep with, things we can't do on Shabbos, all these limitations on pleasure. All of them are the most simple levels of pleasure. All of them. The Torah does not inhibit us from the higher levels of pleasure. And the idea being is that the Torah wants us to not lose sight, to not settle for the simplest pleasures in life. The Torah wants us to shoot for the skies with regards to pleasure. Wants to accomplish. And how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you have soulful pleasures in a phys- with a physical body? The Torah. We're told. We're told by the Midrash, Maimonides brings it down as well, the, you should love Hashem your God. How do you love Hashem? Well, that's how much you have to love Hashem. With all your hearts, with all your, with all your soul, with all your resources. But how do you, how do you go about doing it? So he says, if you study Torah. Now, how do you study Torah? You think about what the Torah is. You think. You dwell deeper. You have a tremendous insight. And then you have pleasure. Maman gives us a four step process to having and he said this is the greatest level of pleasure you could possibly experience on on earth. If someone studies Torah, now not when we say study Torah, it doesn't mean just superficially. It means actually delving in and dedicating, and sweating twelve hours over some very seemingly uh, confounding piece of Torah, and you gain an insight, that's a spiritual pleasure. And that spiritual pleasure is unmatched and unrivaled of any physical pleasures. And that's the way to love God because that's the way to actually experience God. The problem with loving God is actually experiencing God. You can't see God. You can't talk to we You could talk, but you can't really have a dialogue with God. How do you have some sort of interface with God? That's the biggest problem with loving God. Where's the interface? You can't love something that you cannot come in contact with. You can't have any interface with. The answer is the Torah because the Torah is God's mind but you can read Torah, you can read it like it's Moby Dick, right? You can just read it. Well, then you're not really getting it. You have to delve in deep. You have to study. You have to sweat. You have to get an insight, and suddenly, ah, oh, you got it. And that moment, that aha moment, is, is a spiritual pleasure, and I want to uh, just mention that I know people that have experienced this. I know people that have experienced this, and they testify that it is a, a pleasure unmatched and unrivaled by anything physical. So, one more question. One more question. Yes. oh yeah so
1: you can conceivably come up with solutions to problems that have not been solved
0: Uh, potentially yes well you I'm saying not to say that the that the Torah is the only thing that could sharpen a brain I think that playing chess and I don't know there are other ways to sharpen the brain but it's probably the best way Uh, yes and I think that when a brain the the sharper the brain gets the more likely it is to the more potent it is Yes, absolutely. So
1: has the Torah solved the uh, the question about the chicken and the egg?
0: The chicken and the egg? The and you the
1: know what came first, the chicken and the
0: egg? Well, but that's simple. The question not simple. The that, that question presupposes that God doesn't exist, right? Yeah. Because it's saying that a chicken only comes from an egg and everyone only comes from a chicken. That's That's the presupposition. But, once you establish that God exists, well, God can make a chicken or an egg. So once you have that, then, then the answer is, well, we don't know. But it's, it's, not, it's, it's not an ever-ending cycle. Either God created the chicken or God created the egg, which became to the chicken. Either way, right? That's the answer. Ta-da! Problem solved. <laughs> so that's that. And this, I think, I think what I wanted to do here, uh, I want to talk about other things as well, but we didn't, we, didn't, we guess we didn't, uh, we don't have enough time. But what I wanted to do is to just, you know, this is something that we're told. My money says he really wants us to study uh, just the simple people, the basic people like the peasants, they should be studying nine hours a day. And, uh, you know, that just to understand that statement. What he's really telling us is that there's a lot more to Torah than than, uh, than, than you know than meets the eye, and superficially trying to skim the surface, you're not going to really get the full picture. And I think that what we talked about today does, you know, in a small measure, chip away at the at the superficial you know surface attitude that we have. I'm saying we. I'm not saying I'm not saying that. I'm not trying to lecture here. I'm saying me myself as well. When you see this, you, you realize that it's much much more and uh we're told uh, the bible writes uh about the torah this isn't this is the bible it's not the actual five books of moses <laughs> that the torah is more broad than uh, uh than than land and uh and and uh and deeper than than the the ocean yeah it's 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 never ending right uh, why? Because it's like a window to God's mind. Just like God's mind has no limitations, the Torah really could go deeper. And the deeper you go, the more you realize you don't know. And so much so that Rabbi Akiva, the greatest of the Tanaim, right, he says, listen, compared to what Torah really is, I'm no more than a shepherd of small, of small animals. That's what I am. He says, because the more Torah you know, the more you could sense the vastness of the Torah. And hence, the more ignorant you feel, we we feel, you know what? I read the I read the Torah. I kind of know what it is, right? and that's a, that's a sign of our ignorance because we we think we know it. Rabbi Tiva, who knew more Torah than we could ever, in our faintest dreams, even imagine, he said upon himself that my knowledge of the Torah is equal to that of a of not not not, uh, not a shepherd of big animals of small animals. Like that's how limited I am in my knowledge of the Torah because he knew. How vast it is! That's what I want to do—to get a little picture of of, of the vastness of Torah and what it could do for us uh, in our lives, and why we place such a on on study of it. So that's that. I wish everyone here. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed. Very nice. And I hope that uh, you know it presents Torah in a, in a different light. And uh, hope that we can do something about it and study Torah and try to gain gain more insight and wisdom. And I would have a wonderful Shabbos. Thank you so much.
1: That's it for
2: a month, right? That's
1: it.